This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, it's good to be back in the book of Romans. We took a few weeks off going through our community series and then also with our missions conference last week, but I'm thrilled to be back in Romans. I hope that you are as well. Part of why I'm thrilled this morning is because this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, it serves as this bridge between the first 11 chapters, the doctrinal portion of this letter that Paul writes, describing the glories of God in the gospel, what God has done for sinners like us. This is what he's laid out in the first 11 chapters, and we, we took our time going through that, spent a couple of years just marinating in the gospel as Paul lays it out in those first 11 chapters. But these first two verses in chapter 12 are a bridge between that and, and what follows, which is the more practical section. What follows in, in, in the remainder of chapter 12 through the end of chapter 16 through the end of the letter are practical exhortations as to how we are to live our lives. But what we find in verses 1 and 2 is not just a bridge, but what we find in these two verses are in kind of broad sweeping terms, before we get into the nuts and bolts of how we ought to live in light of the gospel, verses 1 and 2 describe for us in, in these broad sweeping terms what living the Christian life is really all about. So follow along in your Bibles as we read these first two verses. The, the last time we covered, we spent most of our time in verse 1, and so we're going to cover that a little bit this morning by way of summary, but we're going to focus on verse 2. Church, this is the word of God that has been secured by our Father, protected throughout the ages, so that what we encounter in just a few moments is the very breath of God given to us for our salvation, for our sanctification, and for his glory. Let us read the word of God. Follow along as I read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me? Gracious and holy God, we thank you for this book that we hold in our hands. And we confess with conviction that we believe it to be your very breath and these are not just English words and grammar that are fitted together in a book. They are your words graciously given to us by your divine wisdom to show us who you are, to show us who we are, to bring us to faith in your son Jesus Christ and to lead us in faith each and every day. So Father, we ask in faith this morning, that you would use your word by the power of your Holy Spirit in this very room to change us, 
transform us to look more like Jesus, not so that people will look at us and say, what great Christians, but so that people will look at us and say, what a mighty God that has transformed sinners and rebels into children of God. May you receive all the glory and honor and praise, not just from our time together devoted to your word this morning, but that you might receive the honor, glory, and praise through the change that you affect in our lives. Be glorified, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is Paul doing in verses 1 and 2? Let's seek to explain this text, and then we'll seek to apply it. Paul's making an appeal to us. He's pleading with us. That Greek word that we looked at last time, parakaleo. It's like he's calling us to his side to, to plead with us, to, to, to make an appeal to us. And he says that this appeal is based on something. And it's based on, he says, in view of God's mercy. In other words, in view of everything that has come prior to this in chapters 1 through 11 that we've spent two years seeking to glean from, the glories of the gospel in light of all all that God has done for us by rescuing you and I from certain and deserved punishment, all that he has done in his work of redeeming us by his grace and justifying us by faith, all of this good news that Paul has laid out in these first 11 chapters, based on that, Paul now makes these two appeals in these two verses. When last time we were in Romans, a few weeks ago, we covered his first appeal there in verse 1, where, where Paul urges us to present our bodies as a sacrifice. The, the verb to present, we said, really meant to yield or to surrender, to lay down. And, and so Paul urges us, he appeals to us, he pleads with us to surrender our bodies, and the word bodies is a reference to all of who we are, not just our flesh and blood bodies, but all of who we are as a person, to lay that down and surrender that as a sacrifice, he says. And he describes the kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable to God. And then he says, that is your spiritual worship in view of God's mercy. We looked at last time that that phrase, this is your spiritual worship, can be, can be understood in terms of this is your rational service to God. So in other words, in, in view of the mercies of God, displayed in the glories of the gospel, which he's laid out in those first 11 chapters, as a result of that, there is a, there's a rational logical service of worship that is due to God. Not to pay him back, but simply in light of all that he has done for us in Christ. And that rational worship is rendered to him as we daily surrender all of who we are to him as a sacrifice, a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice, day by day, moment by moment, offering ourselves to him. So that was the appeal that he made in verse, two, in verse 1. Now, in verse 2, the second appeal to us is given in the form of two imperative verbs. And we remember from grammar that, that an imperative verb is a command. So we've got two commands in verse 2, two imperative verb forms. One is negative and one is positive. So the first imperative verb, the first command 
is the one that's in the negative form, and it is, and it is do not be conformed, he says, to this world. Don't be conformed to this wor- world. So this word conformed, the verb here, um, it's actually in the, it's a passive imperative verb. And passive imperative verbs are just kind of weird. They're, they're imperative, so they're a command. They're telling us something to do, but they're passive in that they're describing something that happens to us. It would be kind of like someone saying to you, I want you to go get paid. Well, can you re- are you really in control, in full control of getting paid? There might be some things that you can do that would, would present yourself as one who deserves to be paid, but you're not really in full control of that. Or if, if someone were to say to you, don't get ridiculed, right? There might be some things that you do that would prevent you from being ridiculed, but you're not really in control fully of that. So it's the same idea here. Don't be conformed to this world. This verb, be conformed, means to be fashioned or to be pressed, conformed, into a pattern. Uh, the Apostle Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So, so before you came to Christ, you, there was a form there. It was, it, was, it was labeled, Peter labels it the passions of your former ignorance. And he, and he exhorts the believers, don't be pressed into that mold. Don't be pressed into the passions of your former ignorance. So the idea behind this word conformed is that of being pressed into a mold. Taking something that is existing in a current form or pattern and exerting an outside force on it such that it is pressed into another form or mold such that it looks different. I want to give you an illustration of this. You may have seen this before. Um, we have all, all of us, unless you lived a deprived childhood, have played with Play-Doh, right? How many of you have played with Play-Doh this morning? Okay, not, not many of you. All right. So the idea of, of Play-Doh is not that you would ball it up and throw it at your brother, as our kids are often uh, will do, but it is to take a mold and you start with a lump, a ball of Play-Doh that is in a current form and you press it using outside force into another mold. And what happens by exerting that force into that mold is that it takes the shape, it takes the form of that. See, I, I, I apparently disqualified myself from kindergarten here. There we go. So it, take, it takes the form of the mold, right? How's that happen? It happens by pressing it. That's the idea of conforming. So Paul's appeal there in verse 2 is he's exhorting us to not be pressed into the mold of this world. So in in this illustration, we're the Play-Doh. And the mold is the world. The world in which we live, the world to which we have been sent as missionaries, right? The world of thoughts, ideas, desires, 
values, the world of standards and ethics around us, temptations and such. And Paul says, don't be pressed into the pattern or the mold of this world. Now, this Plato illustration, like all illustrations, is not perfect because it would be pointless for us to look at this ball of Play-Doh and issue a command to it. Do not be pressed into that mold, right? Don't be pressed. That would be, what would be the point of issuing that command to this ball of Play-Doh? It'd be pointless because there's nothing about this ball of Play-Doh that can defend itself from anyone, and even a toddler, from pressing it into a mold. It is defenseless in that regard. And yet the word exhorts us, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, to the form of this world, the mold of this world. And I think there are three reasons, I would suggest to you three reasons why such a command would be given to us. First of all, because apparently there's a real danger in being pressed into the mold of this world. Secondly, because apparently someone or something is like my hand and it is seeking to press us into the mold of this world. And thirdly, because apparently there's something about us, something in us that can prevent us from being pressed into the mold. Unlike this Play-Doh, there's nothing in this Play-Doh that will prevent it. In fact, it's designed in such a way as to make it easy to press it into the mold. But there must be something about us that can prevent that from happening. Otherwise, why would we be commanded to not be conformed to the pattern of the world? So let's look at each one of these. First of all, we know that the danger is very real. Because the world in which we live, the world around us is not friendly to the gospel. It's not friendly to those who want to live faithfully for Jesus Christ and in obedience to the Great Commission. The world of Jesus' day clearly wasn't friendly to that. The world of Paul's day wasn't friendly to that. And neither is ours today. Today's world, as we described it, today's world of thoughts and ideas and values and principles and temptations, it's a dangerous place for believers in Jesus Christ. And yet, we have been sent to this world as missionaries, as ambassadors to represent our king in this world. But the danger is that if we're not careful, and in some ways deliberate, to stand against the tide of culture, If we're not careful, we will be pressed into it such that we look like it. And church, what a travesty that would be. For those who have been created in the image of God, who have subsequently sinned against God and irreparably stained that image, and yet, by God's grace, He has recreated us in Christ as a new person because of faith in in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And we are then in the process of being formed into the image of Jesus. What a travesty it would be 
for us to instead be pressed into the mold of this world such that we look more like it than we look like Jesus. What a travesty that would be. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, before he was arrested and led away to be crucified, Jesus is praying for you and I, for his followers. And as he's praying, he talks about this tension that his followers will live in as they seek to live for him while we're in the world. Listen to the words of Jesus as he prayed to the Father. He says, I have given them your word, Father. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Jesus says. Jesus goes on and says, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctify is a $5 seminary word that basically means to make holy. Hagiatso, to make holy or to to set apart or to import that into our understanding, our, our conversation this morning. It means to not be pressed into any other mold other than the mold of Jesus Christ. He says, I don't want you to take them out of the world because I've sent them into the world. They've got work to do while they're there. But I want you to sanctify them in truth. And he says, your word is truth. It's absolutely critical. The word of God is going to be critical if we're going to not be conformed to this world and yet be transformed as we're going to see. He says, I want you to make them holy by your word. So the danger of being conformed to the pattern of this world is very real or otherwise Jesus would not have prayed to the Father to sanctify us as we are in the world. But the second reason why that command, don't be conformed to this world, is, is given to us, I believe, is because apparently there is someone or something that is trying to press us into the mold, just like my hand. My hand is that outside force that is pressing that Play-Doh into the mold. What is that outside force that is seeking to press us into the mold of this world? I call it our three-headed enemy. Our three-headed enemy is Satan, the world itself, and our very flesh, our sin nature. Church, we have an enemy, enemy of our souls. Satan, the devil, the great deceiver, the father of lies. Now we know that as believers in Jesus Christ, he has no power over us. He has power over those who, who, who reject him, who reject the gospel, but not over us. But while he can't occupy us, and he can't steal us from the Lord, and while he can't kidnap our souls, yet he still can attack us spiritually. And he still does influence us with temptations and desires that lead us away from godliness. 
And he does still barrage us with lies. Lies about who God is, lies about who we are. But James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 7, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I would submit to you there's no reason for that command to be in Scripture if it were not possible. Because of Christ in us, because of the Holy Spirit residing in us, who is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. So we can resist the the press from Satan as he seeks to press us to look more like the world than like Jesus. We've been regenerated in our spirits. The spirit is in us and Satan is no match for him who is in us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Listen to the encouragement from the apostles Peter and Paul as they erect a proper defense against Satan's attempt to press us into the mold of the world. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering, suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Resist him. Be firm in your faith. Have a knowledge of what God is doing and how God is protecting other brothers and sisters around the world, and he will protect you as well. So our mind is going to be critical in this not conforming and yet being transformed. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give him a foothold. Don't give him an inch. He'll take a mile. Give no opportunity for the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, the very familiar passage where Paul exhorts us to put on the full armor of God. Part of why we do that is to defend ourselves against Satan's press on us to press us into the mold of the world. Because he wants to rob God of glory. And if he can take God's people and press God's people into the mold of the world, then it will rob God of glory the display of his majesty as he transforms us into the likeness of his son Jesus. So Satan wants to press us into the mold of the world. And part of of how we do that is putting on the armor of God. Verse 11 from Ephesians 6 says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 16 of Ephesians 6, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And so in these ways, we can resist the devil in his efforts to press us into the mold of the world. But the second head of our three-headed enemy is the world itself. It's the world itself around us. Uh, In the illustration of this Play-Doh and this mold here, Um, There is something about this mold that whispers to this Play-Doh, man, you're missing out. You don't just want to be a lump of Play-Doh, do you? And if you're pressed into me, man, life's going to be so much more fun. 
you're going to be that much more desirable. You're going to be that much more attractive. You're going to be that much more important, that much more successful. The, the, the mold whispers to the Play-Doh, come to me, be molded in me. Now, I know that's silly. The mold doesn't talk. But it drives the point home, doesn't it? That the world around us, this world system the, to, to which we have been sent, sent as, a, as ambassadors and, and witnesses and representatives of the king and missionaries, this world of thoughts and values and temptations and desires, this world around us whispers something to us. It promises something that it never delivers on. You, you, you need to look like this. You need to wear this kind of clothing. You need to have this new thing, this new gadget. You need to be more like this person. You need to have this as a part of your life. The world whispers this to us, that its treasures and its delights and its trinkets that, it's offer, that it offers is the greatest But as we read in John 17, Jesus calls us to be separate from the world, to be in it, but not to be of it, not to look like it. But the world is whispering these things to us for a reason, because there's something in us that secretly wants what it has to offer. And that gets us to the third head of our three-headed enemy. And it's not something that's outside of us like Satan or the world. It's something that's in us. It's our flesh. What Paul calls our flesh, our sinful nature. As believers in Christ, crucified, that that crucified flesh, that defeated flesh, and yet, not yet fully destroyed flesh. In Mark chapter 7, when Jesus was teaching his disciples about how a person becomes defiled, he says that you're not defiled by what's on the outside. You're defiled by what's on the inside. He says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of people, come all these things, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And he could go on. And Jesus concludes, all these things come from within, and they defile a person. See, we, we like to point the finger outside of ourselves, don't we? We like to point the finger, and we like to lay blame at the world and at Satan. Those temptations, the devil made me do it. But the reality is, those things would have no appeal to us whatsoever if there wasn't a sin nature already resonant inside of us. So Paul issues this command, don't be conformed to this world. And, and, and the third reason why he issues that command to us is because there, there must be something resident in us with which we can prevent ourselves from being conformed to the pattern of this world. We can resist Satan, like we said. We can be separate from the world, not isolated, because we're told to be missionaries to it, right? Ambassadors, witnesses to it. To be in it, but not to be of it, not to look like it. Be separate from the world. But thirdly, what do we do with our flesh? 
that thing that we can't point to on the outside, it's, it's, it's part of us. What are we to do with that? And Paul tells us elsewhere that we're to put it to death. We're to, we're to mortify our flesh, he says. He talked about this back in chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 13. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Don't, church, let's, let's, let's not breeze over that. If you live, hear the word of God. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you feed the flesh, if you continue to live according to the flesh, don't let your, don't let your doctrinal theological boxes get in the way here. If you live according to the flesh, the warning from Scripture is you will die. But, he says, if by the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, then you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. So we live by the Spirit. We, we, we feed the Spirit. We nurture the Spirit, not the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put death the deeds of the body, we will live. He said it this way in Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is that? He tells us sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So how do we put to death the deeds of the flesh? We starve it, right? We kill it by starving it. And we starve it, just like you would starve anything else, by not feeding it. You see, our, our flesh will only, to be, will, will only continue to be strong if we continue to feed it, by giving into it, by saying yes to it, by living according to it, as Paul warns us not to. But if we starve it, by saying no to it, we will starve it out and kill it. We will be living by the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the body, and we will live. We will live. The more we say no to our flesh, church, the less, the less influence our flesh can exert on us to be pressed into the mold of the world. So Paul's negative exhortation here is don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. But then there's a positive side to his appeal, and that is be transformed. Be transformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Now the Greek word here is metamorpho. Metamorpho. Uh, we get our English word metamorphosis from this. It literally means to be radically changed into something else. In fact, our word, our English word transformed helps us to understand that trans meaning above or beyond and form meaning the forms that we know of in this world. So, so it is to be radically changed into something for which there is no form in this world. Far beyond any form that we see here. That's what it means to be transformed. Being conformed carries this idea, again, of being pressed into a different mold. And so it is being changed by, by outside pressure being exerted on us such that we are pressed into a different mold, and now that we're in that different mold, we look differently. While being transformed is not being having outside pressure exerted on us, but instead there's something on the inside, there's an inside force working where we are transformed from the inside out, and, and our very form changes. Not because we've been pressed into something different, 
but because something on the inside has changed us and we look different now on the outside as well. So apparently in coming to faith in Jesus, this is Paul's exhortation in view of the mercies of God. We're to be changed. We're to be radically transformed into something different. This, this word transforming, we actually see it in a couple places in the Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark. As Jesus climbs this mountain, having pulled away with James and Peter and John, and he is transfigured in front of them. It's the same word here as transformed. He is radically changed into something else. He is changed from a humble carpenter into one, as Matthew uh, says in his gospel account, one whose face shone like the sun and whose clothes became white as light. There was a radical change that took place in the transfiguration of Jesus. That's the word that is used here where Paul commands us, be transformed. The other only other occurrence of this New Testament word is in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul says this, and we all, listen to this church, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, how is Paul describing this transformation, this transfiguration that we undergo? We all, with unveiled faces, we're beholding the glory of God. And as we behold the glory of God, what happens? We are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. There's a biblical principle here, church, that we become like that which we worship. What are you beholding? What are you longing for? What are you looking after in your life? Is it the world? Because you'll become like it. Or is it the glory of God? With unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed, transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're being changed into the image of Christ, the likeness of of Jesus. One of the popular illustrations for this word being transformed is that of a caterpillar that crawls up or or makes its own cocoon and is transformed. We use the word metamorphosis, right? It's where we get the Greek word metamorpho. Transformed from a, a crawling caterpillar into a butterfly, beautiful butterfly. We call that radical transformation, that radical change, metamorphosis. And that's what we're called to. But again, we note here that this is a passive imperative verb. So just like don't be conformed, this word is commanding us to do something while at the same time describing something that happens to us. So we don't change ourselves. We are changed from the inside out. Although we don't do the work of being transformed, yet Paul still commands us to be transformed. Why and how? 
So let's look at how we're transformed, and we're only going to be able to just touch the tip of the iceberg on this. This process of transformation is what biblical scholars call sanctification, being made practically holy to look like Jesus. Go back, read Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8. It's where he lays all of this out. But this is what he's referring to here when he talks about being transformed. So how are we transformed? Paul, Paul says, there's, there's a hint in this verse, in verse 2, that indicates for us how one is transformed. Do you see it? Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. What does that mean? Well, the word renewal means a renovation. So if you're going to renovate something, you're, you're renewing it. You're bringing it to life. It's a, it's a complete change for the better. Laura read out of this when she read from Titus chapter 3. And part of what that says is Christ saved us not because of our works done in righteousness, not, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So this renewal that he's talking about is something that's done by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this, which only makes sense, right? If we're going to be changed from the inside out, the Holy Spirit is in us. We're the temple of God. If we've placed our faith in Jesus, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He resides in us, and so he changes us from the inside out transforms us. The verb for renew, to renew, is found twice in Paul's writings elsewhere in the New Testament. One is in 2 Corinthians 4.16, where Paul says this. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So that's good news, right? Though our outer self is wasting away, and at 52, I begin to see this more and more and more. Our outer self is wasting away. It is succumbing to the effects of the fall. But our inner self is being renewed. Praise God. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so it's this slow, deliberate, day-by-day process of change. It doesn't happen in 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 an instant. We're not sanctified in a microwave. We're transformed over time. Paul also uses this word in Colossians 3 verse 10 when he says, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So again, the the mind is involved here. We are to put on this new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Paul's talking there about an inner self being renewed, putting on this new self that is being renewed. And in Romans 12, 2, he's talking about being renewed in our mind. So what's our mind? Well, our mind is just what we think it is. It's that place where we think and feel and decide and perceive. And I think that's encouraging, by the way. I think it's very encouraging that this transformation that needs to happen in us, that we're commanded for it to happen to us, is not primarily a transformation of outward behavior. 
It's not primarily a transformation of our morality. It's primarily a change in how we think, how we perceive, how we feel, how we decide. It's a renovation, not just of our morality. It's a renovation of our mind. Where our mind is renovated and renewed in how we think, feel, perceive, and decide. Our minds are renewed from both directions. Our minds are renovated from, the, from, from within by the Holy Spirit that resides in us who know Jesus by faith, but also from the outside as we get the Word of God in here. You see, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and if that's not true for you this morning, stick with me. Because what I don't want you to walk away from this morning, if you don't know Christ as Lord, is that you need to try real hard not to be conformed to this world. Or you need to try real hard to be different and be changed. No. There's, there's some bad news that you've got to deal with first. But if you know Jesus Christ as Lord, if you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit did a work in you. He changed your mind about God. He changed your mind about the gospel. He regenerated you in your spirit. And he, he, he took the word of God, whether it was from a person or a preacher or whatever, he took the word of God, the gospel in the word of God, and he used it to change your mind about him and about the gospel and about who you are in front of him. But... As you continue to grow in your faith, how do you grow? How are you transformed? Well, again, it's the Holy Spirit that continues to take his word and plant it deep in our soul and through it to change us and renovate our mind day by day, renew our mind, how we think, feel, perceive, and decide such that we are transformed. And so we can ask ourselves, who is it that transforms us? Is it we or the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's both. The Holy Spirit changes us from the inside. But we too have a role in our transformation, in our sanctification. As we've learned already this morning, we resist the devil. We seek to be separate from the world, not isolated. This is not about living as, as monks in a monastery and separating ourselves from culture. We're to be in the world, being witnesses and ambassadors and missionaries, but we're not to look like the world. So we resist Satan. We separate from the world in that regard, and we starve out our flesh by saying no to it, by not giving in to it, and we're able to do this because of the spirit that's at work in us. But also, we feast on the word of God. We read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it. We, we feast on this book, which, as we said before, is the very breath of God. We feast on that so that the Holy Spirit can continue to use it and work his work of transformation in us. And then ultimately, Paul tells us that this 
allows us to be able to discover God's will in our lives. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing, that word that means so that, it's a, it's a result of being transformed by the renewing of our mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, as our, as our minds are being renovated by the word of God, as our minds are being renewed by what is in this book. And the Holy Spirit uses that to transform us, to, to change us, to look more like Jesus, then it stands to reason then that we'll be better equipped and enabled to know how God wants us to live, to know what his will is as we seek to live for him in life. So let me ask you a question. And this is something that we all have to wrestle with, and, and periodically, not one time. I want you to ask yourself, am I being conformed to the pattern of this world? I mean, we all are in some ways, right? What are the ways in which that three-headed enemy has been successful in your life? Satan, the world itself, drawing you. Our flesh longing for that. In what ways has that enemy been successful in making you look like the world? To the degree that we look like the world is the degree to which we must repent. Repent that this is not becoming of one who is made in the image of God. And then trust in Christ. Trust in the Spirit in us to help us resist the devil, to help us live in the world as his missionaries but not look like the world, to help us starve out our flesh by not giving into it, instead to live by the Spirit. Trust in the abiding presence of Christ in us to do that work in us but also to trust in the Holy Spirit to change us by using the word as we get it into our lives. Second question, are you being transformed? Are you being transformed to look more like Jesus? Do you look more like Jesus this year than you did last year? If not, then maybe there's a way in which your mind could be renovated, can be renewed through this book. How can you get more of the breath of God into your life by reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, feasting on the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit will use it, renovate how you think, act, perceive, feel, and decide so that you are transformed to reflect better the glory of God. Now, before we close, I want us to consider again this appeal that Paul is making in verses 1 and 2. Because I would suggest to you that perhaps this is not two appeals, but really one. One. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. 
Paul says, I appeal to you, I plead with you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think Paul's making a single appeal here. To offer our lives as a sacrifice to God, to surrender all of who we are to God as a, as a living, holy, and acceptable to God sacrifice. And that this is our reasonable worship. This, is, this makes sense given who he's done. Not so that we will pay him back, but this absolutely makes sense given all that he is and all that he's done for us. This is our reasonable service of worship, given the mercies of God shown to us in the gospel. So when we move to verse 2, I don't think he's giving us a separate and distinct appeal. But instead, Paul here is illuminating further what it looks like for us to offer and present our lives as a sacrifice. That if we're going to worship God by offering all of who we are, surrendering all of who we are to him as a sacrifice day by day and moment by moment, then this will involve us not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind, by getting the word into us. And the Holy Spirit uses uses that to transform us not to look like the world, but to look more like Jesus so that he is glorified. That's the appeal. That's the the pleading that Paul gives to us. Now, there's a couple of implications from that. The first is, and I just, I don't know, maybe I'm weird. I think this is powerful. What this means is that the fuel or the motive for that appeal in verse 1 to surrender our lives as a sacrifice is the fuel and motive not just for that, but it's also the fuel and motive for not conforming to the pattern of the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our mind. That in light of the glories of God in the gospel, that is the fuel that keeps us from being conformed to this world, because we are reminded what God has done for us, and this is not becoming of us. What a travesty of us who have been recreated into the image of God to be be looking like the world. It's the fuel that keeps us in the word of God so that that our, our minds are renovated such that we think, act, look, feel, and perceive and decide based on the word of God, knowing God's will so that we are transformed by the Holy Spirit to look like Jesus. The fuel for that? A fuel for that? Because I know that's hard. We all struggle with not conforming, yet being transformed. The motive, the fuel for that is the mercies of God. So we can't, we can't graduate from the gospel. We can't graduate from chapters 1 through 11. We have to stay there and remind ourselves of the glories of God and what he has done for us in sending Jesus for rebels and sinners like us. The last thing that this means to us, and I mentioned this at the outset, verses 1 and 2 are our bridge to everything that comes after this. What we're going to find in chapters 12 through 16 is just a veritable plethora, if you will, of commands. 
exhortations as to how we are to live. And it's, it's a bridge between all that's come before, the foundation of our faith, the glories of God in the gospel, and now here are all these ways in which we're to live in light of that. And verses 1 and 2 are that bridge. So as we unpack chapters 12 through 16 in the coming weeks, and we encounter all of those exhortations for all the different parts of our lives, we ought to heed the advice of those exhortations because of the mercies of God. We ought to present and offer, surrender our lives to God as a sacrifice. And this will involve both fighting against that three-headed enemy of ours so that we don't get pressed into the mold by them. And it will also involve us getting more of the word of God into us so that our mind is renovated and our lives are transformed to look more like Jesus. So when we encounter those, we're going to go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Why will we do this? Because of the mercies of God. And all of them are going to fall under that rubric of not being conformed to the power of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we can only do this because the gospel is true. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in his finished work on the cross as your only, only hope from what can only be described as certain and deserved punishment for all of us because of our rebellion against him. If you've placed your faith in Jesus in that regard, Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for you. It doesn't matter how far you've been pressed into the mold of the world. It doesn't matter how much that has happened. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You are no longer held in bondage to sin and self and flesh and world and Satan. You are not handcuffed. You have been set free in Christ Jesus. Sin no longer holds you captive. And the Holy Spirit is in you. Romans 6. The Holy Spirit is in you, enabling you, equipping you by his power to not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but, be, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you are transformed in the image of Christ. He who began that good work in you, we're promised, will bring it to completion. So that's good news. That's really good news because all of us find ourselves conformed fighting that, battling that, wanting to be transformed, but finding ourselves being pulled back into the world. There's a power that's at work in you if you are in Christ that has not only saved you, but by the grace of God, for the glory of God, will sustain you and give you everything that you need to keep fighting this battle for his glory. But if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not good news because the testimony of Scripture says that you're still in your sin. You're still under the condemnation of your rebellion against God. You're still under judgment. 
And it's not about you trying not to be conformed and trying to be transformed. Because the Bible's very clear that, that your attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags. But here's the good news. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live perfectly like you and I never could, to achieve a righteousness that we could never achieve, and then to die in our place on a cross, paying our debt, so that by faith in him, which means trusting that, that your only hope for rescue from what you deserve is his finished work on the cross, and that the grave and tomb are empty, and that he defeated sin and death, your faith in him does two things removes the stain of sin that you could never remove on your own and grants to you by faith his perfect life, his righteousness. And if that describes you here this morning, I beg of you, along with the Apostle Paul, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he will save you. He will transform you. He will forgive you of your sins, give you his righteousness, and he will put his Holy Spirit in you so that you too will be transformed from a sinner into a saint, from one who is an enemy of God into one who is a child of God. I beg of you to be reconciled to God by placing your faith in him alone. Let's pray.